lifestyle of worship leads to sanctification, and in particular, learning to love God and love others. But turn to Matthew 12, and let's review our worship theology. Matthew chapter 12. Every counseling theory or approach has a view of what's wrong with humans, to use the technical term of ideology. So every counseling system has a view of the ideology. What's the source of the problem? Well, I've come to believe, we would say as Christians, we would say, well, we believe in the sin nature, and that's in some way influencing every counseling issue. Well, I want to make that even more precise. I don't think that's precise enough. Most precisely what happened in the garden is false worship. Now think about it with me. The heart in the Bible is your mind, your will, your emotions, and your desires. If you study Genesis 3, you'll see they were thinking the wrong things. They, their emotions were touched. They had wrong desires, and they made wrong decisions. That's the heart. And the heart in the Bible is about worship. So even though the word heart is not used in Genesis 3, when the fall took place, worship is all through that passage because their hearts were engaged in believing what Satan presented to them and the promises that he gave them, and they were choosing to believe them, and their emotions and desires were all wrapped up in it. So what is the heart? The heart, according to Scripture, uh, are your treasures. It's your value system. Look at uh, Matthew 12, and it's our Lord speaking, and I'll begin with verse 33, and I'd like you to pick out the synonym in verse 35 that he gives for the word heart. So what is the synonym for the word heart in verse 35? Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That's the famous verse, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Lord is always going after the heart, not just behavior. Pharisees were very much into behavior. Anybody? I mean, if you think about the Pharisees, they were almost like the pastor's dream team. They uh, were in church every time the doors were open. They gave their money meticulously. They studied the Bibles daily. And the once you understand the Pharisees, you kind of scratch your head and go, what's wrong with these guys? Why is the Lord always after them? These were the most religious people of their day, meticulously religious. It's not their behavior, it's their heart. Uh, I, he quotes Isaiah in Mark chapter 7, he says, these people, speaking to the Pharisees, these people serve me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What they were really living for in the inner person was different than their outward behavior. Now, look at verse 35. What is the heart? What's the synonym now in verse 35 for heart? The good man, so he just said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. So what's the synonym? Treasure. So he's telling you something about the heart. The heart is your treasures. Well, how can you tell when somebody's treasuring something? sacrifice for. It's what they protect. It's what they like. You treasure of a treasure. You might talk about it. You want to tell people about your treasures. The Lord is really concerned about our value system. 
what is going on in my heart. My heart is my value system. Now that directly connects it with worship. Hear the connection. The heart is directly connected with worship. Here's why, because my heart is my treasures. It's my value system. Well, here's what worship is. Worship, old English word for worship is worth-ship. I'm ascribing, I go to church on Sunday. I'm supposed to go there, why? Because I ascribe God is so valuable that I am giving him my time and energy to go worship him. He is worthy of worth-ship. So I give him great esteem, great value. I bow to him. I rejoice in him. I hope in him. I trust in him. I love him. And any other worship word that you can think of. So my heart is my value system. It's my treasures. Scripture, though, constantly warns us. This is a regular theme in Scripture. We'll look at just one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament that warns us about false loves, false hopes, misplaced faith, misplaced trust, etc. And then in the same passage tells us, here's true love, here's true hope, uh, here's true faith that you should have. For example, Psalm 146. Let's turn there. So this is point B. False loves, misplaced hope, misplaced trust. Humans, so bottom line problem, etiology, is not just sin. That is true. Sin has influenced me in many ways. But even more precisely, I have a worship problem in my heart. So when the Lord saves you, he's not just saving you to get you to heaven to change your behavior. The Lord saves you to change your desires. He wants to save. He saves the whole person. And he wants to sanctify the whole person. He saves you mind, will, and emotions. He wants to sanctify you, mind, will, emotions, and desires. He died for my wrong desires. He died for my wrong behavior. He died for my wrong thinking. He died for my wrong decision-making. He died for my sinful emotions, mind, will, emotions, desires. So he wants to clean up my mind, my will, my emotions, and my desires. That's just a more extended way of saying he died for the whole person, so he wants to sanctify or save the whole person. And I'm in the process of being changed from the inside out as a follower of Christ. So scripture warns us of false worship. What are some of these? Psalm 146, beginning with verse 3. I'm going to read 3 to 6. Do not trust in princes. Notice the worship words. That's why we're doing this. False worship and true worship. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and in that very day his plans perish. But how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope, another worship word, is the Lord his God. And why? Because he's the creator who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and who keeps faith forever. He's loyal forever. He keeps faith Forever. So what's the contrast there? Political rulers. Boy, do we need to hear this in the United States, right? If we could only get the right person in office, we could turn this whole mess around. But don't put your trust in princes. He's just another man, and in the day that he dies, his plans perish. But you're blessed if your hope is in God. Your hope is in the Lord, 
who's the creator of heaven and earth. Do you see the contrast there? What are you putting your hope in? This is a regular theme. Humans have a tendency to worship the wrong way, rejoice in, hope in, love, any other worship word you bow down to, serve, obey, any other worship word that you can think of, how do you change? Learn to love, trust, hope in the superior worship of the true and living God. Superior worship pushes out inferior worship. And I'm not just talking at the behavior level. I believe it's at the desire level. That as my love for the Lord, my affections for the Lord grow, it pushes out the affections of whatever it is that my flesh finds itself tempted with. Isn't that frustrating, the flesh, and what it finds? You find the, the inner person, you might have weaknesses in a certain area, and you go, wow, I wish I didn't have this weakness. And it's just part of your fallenness that we have to learn to deal with as we're growing in relationship with the Lord. I'm trying to give you a new strategy for how to do that. Superior worship, pushing out inferior worship in our souls. So that's an Old Testament one. If you want to write another Old Testament one down, Psalm 33, 13 to 20 would be one for you to look at this same paradigm. There, it is leaders, kings, trusting in their armies. And that God is looking out over the planet to see the kings. Are there kings that are trusting in the might of their armies and the might of the horse? And God is looking for those who put their trust in him instead. And it's in the same passage. Psalm 118 is another one. It warns us of those who put their trust in man versus those who make God their refuge. Now let me show you a New Testament one. There are Old Testament ones that warn us about money. Don't put your hope in money. Let me show you a New Testament one. 1 Timothy 6. And this same type of thinking is in the New Testament. So 1 Timothy 6. By the end of this message, you're going to think I'm obsessed with worship. And guess what? You'd be right. 1 Timothy 6.17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, notice the next words, or fix their hope, that's a worship word, fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't invest in false hopes, the uncertainty of riches. But contrast, put your hope on God, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Where's your hope? A little bit earlier in the passage, look up at verses 9 and 10, he said this, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful, he's going after this, harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Here's the problem. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The love of money. He doesn't say money is the root of all sorts of evil. It's hoping in money, putting your love in money, putting your trust in money. You can have a right perspective on money. It's from God who richly gives us all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Or you can have a wrong view of money, that money is my hope. Money is my love. Money is where I put my, my trust. So superior love, superior hope, superior faith, and any other worship word you can think of, push out inferior loves, inferior hopes, 
inferior faith. So that's point two now. A lifestyle of worship leads to sanctification. And I do not mean by that, and I think you know this, I do not mean by that walking around all day singing praise songs. Now that's nice if you could do that. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about, like this perpetual singing music to God. I'm talking about worship words and learning to live them every day. Like when my feet hit the floor in the morning, I've just woken up and I say to myself, Ernie Baker, what are you going to put your hope in today? What am I going to choose to love today? You and I both have to make decisions every day of what are my, where are my loves going to go today? Where are my hopes going to go today? What am I going to trust in? Am I going to trust in the approval of people today? Or am I going to put my hope in the living God? Am I going to trust in that I can get my work done and everything that I have planned for my life today? Or am I going to rest in God's plans for my life? This just basic humanity. What will I love in? What will I love today? What will I hope in today? What will I trust today? Now, I believe this is one of our strongest weapons. I have this in bold in the outline just to try to make the point. This is one of our strongest weapons against strong desires. Do you have any entrenched strong desires that you wish you could just get rid of? I do. There's things that frustrate me to no end. One of our strongest weapons against strong desires is superior loves, hopes, faith. They defeat inferior loves, hope, and trust. Now, why did I pick faith, hope, and love? 52 things I said I came up with. Well, that would make sense why at least just pick faith, hope, and love, because that's Paul's trilogy. It ought to start making sense of, well, why does Paul keep talking about faith, hope, love, faith, hope, love, faith, hope, love? And then he says in 1 Corinthians 13, but the greatest of these is love. I want to give you a little taste of why Paul would say the greatest of these is love. As we really focus in on why does God give the love one another commands, love God love others. Let me tell you a story about my dad. So here's the World War II story. My dad was under Patton, uh, 3rd Army, 4th Armored Division, 10th Armored Infantry Battalion. He was the 50 caliber turret machine gunner on a Sherman tank. And so he saw a lot of nasty stuff during World War II in Europe. Uh, I got the tour. I was speaking in Switzerland and then Berlin a few years ago. And one of the missionaries, I sent her my dad's battle map. He brought back from the war a battle map of where he went in Europe. And I made a copy of it, sent it to the missionary ahead of time. And she took her GPS and she plugged in where the roads were today. And she took me on a tour of the exact roads that my dad traveled during World War II. It was pretty cool. We, it, we, Rose and I spent three days doing that and traveling, traveling the battlefields that my dad went to. We only got to the Rhine River and we had to stop because I only had about three days. So one of my dreams someday is to do east of the Rhine and uh, where he went down into the Czech Republic at the end of the war and where he ended the war. That would be absolutely wonderful to finish the rest of the map uh, someday. So uh, my dad, so I grew up hearing stories of Sherman tanks and Tiger tanks. Let me show you a picture. I was going to put this up on PowerPoint, but can you see it at least enough there to get the idea? Look at the Sherman tank on the right compared to the Tiger tank on the left. The Germans, I forget the exact numbers, the Germans made about 10,000 Tiger tanks during World War II. You know how many Shermans 
we made was around 50,000. That was the only way we beat the Germans and their Tiger tanks was just by overwhelming them. My dad told me horror stories about Sherman tanks going against Tiger tanks. He said, son, I saw shells bounce right off the hull of a Tiger tank. Uh, it was not uncommon for one German tank to take out three to five Sherman tanks before one Sherman tank finally got behind a Tiger tank and hit it in the back end where the armor was the softest. Uh, if you saw the movie Fury, maybe you uh, saw that scene where they went around the back of the Tiger tank and finally knocked it uh, out of action. Now, why am, I, why am I bringing that up in this whole thing of superior loves pushing out inferior loves. Does it ever feel like you're fighting a tiger tank? Your flesh is like a tiger tank. And uh, you keep trying all kinds of things to get yourself to change. You have these deeply rooted, strong desires. And I want to change. I want to change. I'm battling my flesh. And sometimes it feels like I'm shooting a BB gun at it. Okay, if I just memorize more scripture, if I sing more praise songs, uh, if I put a filter on my computer and it, it can feel like bing, the BB pops off the strong desires, bounces off the strong desires. Well, I believe one of the most potent weapons in our arsenal to fight the flesh is superior love. Superior love can penetrate the turret of the tiger tank of the flesh. Love, superior loves push out inferior loves. And it's not instantaneous. Remember, again, we believe in progressive sanctification. So we are growing and changing to learn to love the Lord our God more and more and love others more than ourselves. And as we are growing to love God and love others, it pushes out the wrong desires. Now, is this a biblical idea? I'm going to prove it to you that this is a biblical Idea. It's one thing for me to say it. It sounds nice. It sounds like, okay, this gives me a fresh strategy. But it doesn't matter at all if this is not a biblical idea. So let me demonstrate to you that it's a biblical idea. So turn to 2 Timothy. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 2 and 4. And then those of you that I gave... <coughs> Those of you that I gave passages, I'm going to say you can read and I'll sneeze. 2 Timothy 3. Get ready to read. I'll call them out. I don't know the order, but uh, so you just have to be paying attention as I read these. I will be starting uh, with the Gospels and working my way back through the New Testament so you can figure out where you are in that, that grouping. But look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 2 and verse 4. In the end times, the last days, difficult times are going to come. What are the signs of these difficult times? Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, etc. Now verse 4. There's a big contrast. People will be treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There's the contrast for you. It's the same paradigm that you see throughout Scripture. 
Where are you putting your hope? Where are you putting your trust? What are you rejoicing in? What are you loving? We are warned in 1 John chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Uh, I was taught growing up that that meant don't be, the word, the word that was used was worldly, don't be worldly. And what worldly meant was I couldn't dress like the world, I couldn't listen to worldly music, I couldn't go to movies, that was all worldliness. I don't believe that's what that passage is talking about. It may have applications to that. It's talking about what are you loving? Love not the world. Do I have the same value system as the world? What are my loves? Are my loves the same as the world? Am I lust of the flesh? Am I strongly desiring with my eyes lust? It's not just talking about sex. We hear the word lust and we think sex. That's not that word in the New Testament. Lust is strong desire. So am I strongly desiring with my eyes the same things that the world strongly desires? Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. Do I have the same appetites, strong desires, that the world has as a strong appetite? That's what John's after. He's after the inner person, my loves, my desires, what am I hoping in, what am I trusting in. And when you start taking Christianity to that level, it gets uncomfortable really fast, doesn't it? And you start to see, man, i got a lot of sanctification that I need to grow in in my life. Because quite honestly, there are things that I value and love. I'm not pure. I'm not totally pure in the areas of lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. But praise God. We have progressive sanctification. We believe we are growing and changing to learn to love the right things, hope in the right things, trust in the right things, rejoice in the right things. Now let's start reading. Just to overwhelm you a bit with how often love one another is repeated. So John 13, 34 and 35, nice and loud, please. Who has that? I give you to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Yes, all people John 15 12 this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you 15 17 these things I command you so that you will love one another. Romans 12:10 be devoted to one another in brotherly love give preference to one another in honor first Thessalonians 3:12. You stop and just comment on that. Why does Paul say increase and abound in love? Hold on to that question. And he's going to, you're going to hear it again in Philippians. May your love be abounding more and more. Uh, it's like he's teaching. You can't ever exhaust love. Keep growing in love. So we'll come back to that. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Is that 18? Is it? Yeah, looks like it. Okay, I missed one. Did I hear love one another in that one? No. Okay, I'm sorry about that. I wrote down the wrong reference. Second Thessalonians, one. how about verse 8? What's verse 8? Maybe I wrote a 1 when there shouldn't be. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregard no. No, that's not it. Sorry. Okay, Second Thessalonians 1, 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because 
your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul's really concerned about their love to keep increasing, isn't he? Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love of one another because love covers a multitude of sins. 1 John 3.11 This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. That we should love one another. 1 John 3.23 And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. 1 John 4.7 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.11 Beloved, God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then verse 12, 1 John 4.12 No one has ever seen God. We love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Second John 5. Now I ask you, may not as though I were writing to the new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is the most often repeated command of the New Testament. Now let me define love for you, and then we're going to talk about the strategy. And by the way, I'm not going to do the second page of superior faith and superior hope. That can be something you can study on your own for your devotions. I'm just going to focus in on the love portion of uh, how love is used and what the strategy is. I've already stated it, but I'll state it again. Here's what I believe God's strategy is. By loving God and loving others, it leads to godliness. Loving God and loving others leads to holiness. It's another way of saying it leads to holiness. Loving God and loving others, another way of saying it would be it leads to Christ-likeness in our lives. Or another way of saying it is superior loves push out inferior loves in our lives. If you like the Puritans, sometime read a sermon uh, by a guy named uh, Chalmers, Thomas Chalmers, called The um, Expulsive Power of a Superior Affection. It's a great sermon that makes this same point. The Expulsive Power of a Superior Affection, I believe is the title of it. So here's what love is in the New Testament. Agape love is self-sacrificial giving for the betterment of another. Self-sacrificial giving for the betterment of another. And I'm going to add a little John Piper twist to it. And it's this. Self-sacrificial giving for the betterment of another that leads to your true happiness. As I learn to die to self and live for others, it leads to actually a, a more content and satisfied life. Learning to die to self and put others first, living more for the happiness of your wife rather than how she can make you happy, you're going to be a more content person. And so self-sacrificial giving for the betterment of another, and it actually leads to your true happiness. There's always an object that's the focus. Love God, love others. So there's some object that I'm focusing on to love. It could be money. Whatever it is, there's an object that is getting the focus of my attention. And I sacrifice uh, for that. And it's either for the betterment of another or it's I'm focusing on that object because I think it's going to better me. And you can get betterment, sanctification, in the end, when you learn to die to self and put others first. Now, before we look at the Matthew 22 passage, let me skip down to the Romans 13 passage. It just seems a little bit more strategic at this point 
Turn to Romans 13. Why does keep, Paul keep saying, grow in love, grow in love, grow in love, grow in love? I'll show you another one where he says it. He does that in Philippians 1. He does it in Galatians 5. But Romans 13, here's the strategy. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Let's keep reading. For this, and then he starts listing the laws. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. You don't want to break the seventh commandment of don't commit adultery? Learn to love your wife more. Learn to put her first. Um, love God, love others. Love fulfills the law. And this do, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. Superior loves push out inferior loves. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Then I want to introduce you to an idea using Matthew 22 that I actually have come to the conclusion that I believe that this is the mechanism by which sanctification truly takes place in our lives. I'm going to get a little bit more theological with you. This is the mechanism by which sanctification takes place in our lives and fulfills the new covenant in our lives. How does the new covenant get fulfilled? And I believe it's through loving God and loving others. And I'm going to by seeking to prove that. But listen to Galatians 5, 13 through, and I'm going to read through verse uh, 23. He's contrasting again. Galatians 5, 13. So with this understanding that you now have about why Paul uses love, listen closely. For you were called to freedom, brother. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for your flesh, which implies flesh with its desires. He's going to use that wording in just a moment. Your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. So what do you do instead? But through love serve one another. You want to deal with the flesh? Through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement love your neighbor as yourself. Then he contrasts it. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit. He's not talking about a mystical experience here. I'm walking, I'm feeling it, I'm walking by the Spirit. That's not what he means. He's saying walk by the Spirit. What's the Spirit-filled life? He's about to tell you. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. So walk by the Spirit that is, and uh, I could get real technical with you, it's the New Covenant. I believe he's implying the Spirit is going to come and write the law on your heart. Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. Well, what's the Spirit after? The Spirit is after teaching you to love God and love others. And as you grow to love God and love others, what does it do? It keeps suppressing the flesh. As I grow in love for God and others, the flesh keeps dying, 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 dying. Because I'm learning to love God more, my affections are being directed upward 
and outward to others rather than inward, and how do I get my desires fulfilled? So, but I say walk by the Spirit, that has new covenant implications to it, since the Lord says in Ezekiel 36, he'll put the Spirit in our hearts, and what's he going to teach us, what's he going to do? Love God, love others. If you're walking by the Spirit, you're not going to carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You're under a new covenant. You're, this is the new covenant where you have the Spirit in your heart. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now one thing I'd like you to notice with the flesh, fruit of the flesh list, how many of them are relational? Because this whole mini-conference we're doing is about the importance of relationships. Notice how many of them are relational. Fruit of the flesh. Deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now notice this. Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Eight of the twelve things I've counted that he lists have to do with relationships and breaks in relationships when a person is living according to to the desires of the flesh instead of being directed by the new covenant and the spirit and being drunkenness, carousing and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have also forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God but contrasted the opposite is the fruit of the spirit and the first one is love, joy, peace, etc. Proving again or making the point again, superior loves push out inferior loves. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 does the same thing. Paul tells the church in Philippi, I pray that your love for one another will keep growing and abounding. And it's not just because he's trying to get them to be nice people to each other. And God's nice, so therefore he wants us to be nice. There is a strategy behind this. There's a purpose. God does everything by design. And he's giving us, I believe, he's giving us a tool to fight the flesh against the tiger tank of my flesh that oftentimes feels like I'm pelting it with BBs and it doesn't want to die. Well, pelt it with superior love for God and superior love for others. Um, now, so let's think about using love to battle sexual temptation because that seems to be a, a very strong Desire. You could use this for any strong desire. And then we're going to wrap this up. And I'm going to be asking you to consider how can you grow in love for God and others. Oh, before I get to that, let me show you one other passage. Uh, Matthew 22. And so I skipped that one. And why does the Lord say... Love God, love others, and on these two things hinge the whole Old Testament. Matthew 22, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees in silence, they gathered themselves together. And so they're coming up with a strategy now. And one of them, a lawyer, to try to trick him, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? So rather than debating with them which is the greatest commandment of the Ten Commandments, he goes for something deeper. He says, you shall love, the he goes to Deuteronomy 6, not Exodus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now don't miss verse 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. When he says law and prophets, give me a little feedback here. What's he saying? The whole Old Testament. That's his way of saying that's what they call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So he's saying the whole Old Testament depends on these two commandments. The word depend could be translated hinge or hang. So the whole Old Testament, he says, hang on these two commandments, love God, love others. Now think about it. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. What are the first four about? Relationship to God. What are the last six about? Relationship with each other. So even the Ten Commandments, which are the summary of the hundreds of other commandments in the Old Testament, hundreds of other commandments in the Old Testament, Levitical law, are summarized into the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments summarized into? The two great commandments. Love God, love others. So when Ezekiel 36 and when Jeremiah 31 say, I'm going to put my law on your heart, I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to write the law on your heart, what's he saying? I'm going to teach you how to love God, and I'm going to teach you how to love others. If you want to defeat the flesh, grow in love for God. Grow in love for others. And the what you're seeing and experiencing is the benefits of the new covenant. Praise God. We're not under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. And we're actually experiencing the blessings of having the Holy Spirit living within us. And the Holy Spirit is teaching us how to be law keepers rather than law breakers. That makes me want to have a worship service right now. He is actually defeating sin progressively in my life as I grow to love God and love others. It actually makes the Christian life enjoyable, too. Rather than it's this drudgery of behaviorism, and i got to do that, i got to read my Bible five minutes every day, just soothe my conscience that I had my quiet time, and I had my devotional time today, and I went to church, and I gave my tithe. And, uh, this is, hey, let's make it relational. Let's make it about love God. Let's make it about love others. And I don't, instead of I have to give my tithe, I want to give my tithe because I love my God. And I have to read my Bible because that's what good Christians do. I want to read my Bible because I want to know more about my God. I have to pray to be a good Christian. No, I want to talk to the creator of the universe because I'm in relationship with him. This just turns the Christian life on its head and makes it enjoyable instead of so duty-bound and then I'm doing things just out of drudgery and duty in relationship with the Lord. I have to love my wife. No, I love my wife because I'm affectionate for her. I'm affectionate about my God. I'm affectionate for my wife, loving God and loving others. So you can start thinking of the applications. Sexual temptation. Young men that are here, how do you battle sexual temptation and you're not married? Start thinking about your future wife. And you're saying things to your soul like, for my future wife, I may not even know her name yet, for my future wife, I'm going to keep myself pure. I am going to love my future wife even though I'm committed to her, even though I don't even know her name yet. So I'm learning to die to self 
So when the temptations come, you're speaking truth to yourself and you're saying, Lord, help me right now. I'm being very strongly tempted to give into this sexual sin. I'm not going to do it. I don't know her name yet, but I want to keep myself for my future wife. And superior love can push out inferior love. Once you understand this principle, you know what happens also? You start to realize how utterly selfish we can be. I can understand this principle that superior love pushes out inferior love, and I give in to my sin, and I go, I understood it cognitively, but my desires are still overcoming me. Wow, am I, I'm more selfish than I realized I was. It's just deeply rooted in my soul. Uh, think about Joseph. Joseph was tempted with Potiphar's wife. Do you remember what he said? How could I do this against my God? I hear relationship in there. I am so concerned about my relationship with my God. I can't do this. How could I do this against my God? Uh, men, you can keep thinking about the applications. Of course, we use things like filters, etc., accountability. Um, we, Ephesians 5 says, expose the unfruitful works of darkness. There's nothing like bringing light onto sin to help kill it. So be accountable to one another. All of those things are wonderful weapons in our arsenal against sexual temptation. But ultimately, the thing that will penetrate the turret is superior love. How do you keep growing in your love and affection for God? How do you keep growing in your love and affection for your wife, for your future wife? Now, the one with God, I'll close with this. That can be a little nebulous. Think about it with me for a moment. How do you grow in love for God? If I'm commanded to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, what does that mean practically? So how do you grow in love for anything? Brainstorm with me here for a moment, and then we'll conclude. How do you grow in love for anything? Invest in it. Say that again. Invest in it. Invest in it. Good. And you can tell the loves of the heart by what you already invest in. Talk about it. Talk about it. When we love something, we talk about it. Spend time with it. Spending time. Spend. So relationships take time. Uh, how do you, you know, getting a little bit philosophical here, feel a little bit uh, nebulous here, but I'll try to make it as practical as possible. How do you fall in love? What leads to falling in love? So we're commanded to love the Lord our God. How do you fall in love? Not to, The command is not know more about your God. The command is, that's true too, the command is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how do you fall in love? How does that happen? What leads to that? Spending time. Spending time. Beholding beauty. Beholding beauty. Let's stop and think about that one for a moment. Beholding beauty. Uh, John Piper, Jonathan Edwards, and other theologian philosophers through the years have talked about this a lot with creation. If art is a reflection of the artist, Think of that on a broader scale of creation as a reflection of the creator. So if there's something of the artist, of the personality of the artist on the canvas or the photo 
about that person's talents and the types of things they like to photograph. Think about that on a grander scale. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. I believe learning to use creation, seeing God's glory in creation, and growing then in love of my creator of, wow, Lord, you must be majestic. If you made that, Jonathan Edwards, as he was riding from speaking engagement to speaking engagement on the horse, he spent a lot of time meditating on creation and asking himself, what do I learn about my creator from creation? Because creation is speaking, Psalm 19 says, day to day and night to night reveals knowledge. What am I learning about my creator? What attributes of God am I seeing in his creation? And as you see attributes, I love my wife. I told you earlier, one of the things that I find highly attractive is she's so relational. I, I mean, I just, I feel affection for her as I think about how relational she is. That's an attribute. So instead of just memorizing the list of the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God, do that, that's good theology, but take it the next step of what's the purpose of meditating on and thinking about a list of the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. It's to grow in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as you meditate on this, think about, okay, well, how do people fall in love? How do you fall in love? And if you're not affectionate, loving the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind, ask yourself, okay, what would it take to actually grow in love for the Lord? And as you learn to apply those principles, you're beholding his beauty both in the world and in the word, and you meditate on it, and you're speaking truth to your soul and worshiping him, I believe your affections will start to change if you're a child of God. The Holy Spirit loves that. That's what he's wanting. And you know what the net result will be? You'll grow in holiness because you'll end up saying something like Joseph, how could I sin against my God? How could I do this thing? sin against my God. And the same thing with your, your wife or whoever it is, loving God and loving others. You can keep extrapolating on this and use this for your quiet time. Uh, a lifestyle of trust and faith leads to the same thing. A lifestyle of proper hopes leads to the same thing. A lifestyle of rejoicing in the right things leads to the same thing. Any other worship word you could use helps to defeat the flesh, but the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Let's pray. Before I close in prayer, just think for a moment. So what you heard, what's one thing that you can take away from this? Either in loving God or loving others. Maybe something related to growing in your love for God or something related to growing in your love for others. I'll give you a moment to think about that and then I'll pray.
grace, and we need to learn to love you and others more to battle against the flesh. Please help us to do so. Lord, help us to learn to esteem others better than ourselves. In relationship to our wives, I pray that you would help us to keep investing in the relationship, keep investing in putting her above ourself. Keep investing in relationship with you and pursuing relationship with you, pursuing relationship with our wives, learning to love you and love others. It seems very clear to me, Lord, from Galatians and Philippians and Romans 13, that your strategy is to write the law on our hearts by teaching us to love God and love others. We need your help in doing this. Thank you for these men. Thank you that they are so easy to speak to and that they seem eager to learn truth. And I would ask your blessing on the pastors, the elders, the deacons, as they lead in these ministries, care groups, small group leaders, counselors, disciples in the church. Lord, just keep unleashing the potential of this body. Multiply their potential, Lord, to impact their communities so that more worshipers can be created for your honor and glory. And this I pray in Jesus' name.